This is Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Hey, welcome to another action-packed episode of Be Heard Talk, where we talk politics, social justice, Black Lives Matter, and of course, how amazing Tammy looks on the Zoom screens. My name is Stanley Fritz. You can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. You can follow me on Instagram at Stan Fritz. You can follow me on Facebook at Stanley Goodhair Fritz. It was a college joke that went too far and Mark Zuckerberg won't let me change the name anymore. <laughs> but if you are here today, you are here for an action-packed podcast and I'm very happy to have you here. Tammy, welcome back. Hi, it's really nice to be back. I hope everyone missed me because I missed all of you. Tammy, how can the folks find you on the socials? You can find me at Miss David if you nasty on the Instagram and I don't give out my Twitter because that's for my tw- private friends. Just kidding, it's Comrade Tammy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tammy. We definitely miss you. Happy to have you back. How was your time away, Tammy? What'd you do? Oh, my God. Can you guys hear me? Sorry. Hey, Selena. Oh, okay. We're playing mute games. Uh, My time away was fine. Mostly just preparing work, travel, home, life stuff. Um, But I know a lot's been happening, and it's been sort of jolting to not have this space to sort of process my thoughts. So... I'm really happy that today we have a cool show lined up and a really powerful guest that I feel like I can learn a lot from. Oh, yeah. So, no, for sure. Rabbi Cooper. Yeah. Uh, you know. Thanks for having a dinosaur on your program. <laughs> but at, oh, least well, I'm a na- at least I'm a native New Yorker. So a shout, oh, out, yeah. to, shout out to Flatbush, Tammy. Yeah. And yeah, I went to school a little bit north of Harlem up in uh, Washington Heights. So... And, and I've got uh, tickets in all five boroughs, so. Wait a minute, are you a yeshiva king? Uh, I was uh, at yeshiva before they had a gym with a ceiling tall enough to dunk a ball. Ooh. But they're now, they're now got a great team. Amazing. <laughs> I am I'm super happy as well, Rabbi Cooper. For those of you who don't know, my name is Selena Hill. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss Selena Hill. And of course, this is my favorite place to talk race, politics, and culture. We do that every Sunday on Be Heard Talk. So make sure you guys follow us. And shout out to everyone who is watching us via Zoom now, as well as to all who are watching us via Facebook. And if you're listening via podcast, please share this show at Be Heard Talk. Tag us, show us love. And for those of you who don't know, so Rabbi Cooper, he is the Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action Gender agenda for the Simon Weisenthal Center, which is a Jewish human rights organization. So we're going to have a great conversation with him all throughout the show, and particularly to talk about anti-Semitism and Nick Cannon's remarks. But before we get into that, let me throw it over to Tammy to talk about some of the stories in a news roundup. Yes. So, you know, as y'all know, I am your problematic fave, and I could not be more excited for this week's story. Uh, today, I'm saying no to cancel culture, and I want to just defend Nick Cannon a little in saying that both groups have been pitted against each other, puppeteered by white supremacy. But before we get into all of that, the news roundup is where we talk about stories that made you laugh cry, shed some here, and gasp for air when you heard that Miss the Stallion was shot. So please stay with us. We have some powerful stories. Um, first, a remembrance for Congressman John Lewis. So 
All of a sudden this week, we were struck with crushing news. John Robert Lewis, a congressman, civil rights hero, Medal of Freedom recipient, son of sharecroppers, and you know, nonviolent freedom shaker, has passed away at age 80 after a six month long battle with cancer. John Lewis, who had been arrested over 40 times in his life for participating in a number of nonviolent protests, many alongside Dr. King, said that his struggle with cancer was a battle that he'd never quite faced before. Known as the conscience of Congress, he made sure that civil rights efforts never died down throughout his 30 plus years in national politics. Even up to his death, he was pushing for progressive and just legislation, including HR 7644, which prohibits the use of risk and needs assessment tools in juvenile incarceration decisions published on the 16th, a day before his death, and HR 7591, which supports the health and well-being of current and former foster care youth just four days before his death. So just to give a little context that he was always working for our freedom. I want to start with you, Rabbi, because I know that you were quite excited to sort of share memories with us. Um, what are some of the most memorable moments of Congressman Lewis's life, and how are you feeling as someone who's also a freedom fighter? Right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on this uh, wonderful gathering. It's, it's good to be back in the bosom of some New Yorkers again, uh, out here in exile in Los Angeles and Hollywood. Um, uh, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, who's my boss and co-conspirator for over four decades, and I, I wrote a piece this morning in the Jewish Journal, uh, which basically says, a quote, getting into good trouble for America. That's a quote. Getting into good trouble was his quote. That's who J John Lewis was. Getting into good trouble. He was, from the beginning, you know his story, a teenager, basically, who wrote to Dr. King, who just overflowed with the sense that he had a mission uh, to be involved with. Uh, and uh, it's quite an amazing journey. Uh, our center honored him with our highest award and a Medal of Valor. Uh, he spoke at our Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles numerous times. Um, and you know, when you were around him, you felt the energy. And I think maybe his most important uh, contribution all of these decades, but maybe now starting the day after the good Lord took him personally. By the way, I'm absolutely convinced that the angel of death basically went to God and said, you know, I move a couple of billion people a year for you. You never hear me complain. If you want John Lewis, you take him. So we know that John Lewis is, he's in, he's in heaven right now, but his legacy I think is exactly those words. What, what he did, even as an 18 year old, and, and uh, when you come to the museum, you'll see that his words are part of uh, a nine minute film that seven million people have seen coming through the Museum of Tolerance, in which already as a congressman, you hear him saying, I hated racism. I had to, I had to fight it. I hated it with, with all of my being. And I think that rather than being someone, you know, an ancient voice uh, from the previous century, uh, he's so totally relevant. And I think his writings and words will be more so as we go on. He's a person worth for young people rediscovering. 
I think the bottom line for John Lewis, besides the fact that he was a great friend of the Jewish people and Jewish causes throughout, he felt a real affinity. You can always approach him. He was always available. But I think for me, what I got from John Lewis, and, and it stays with me every day, he didn't want to reduce the nature of our relationships through the lens of race on the one hand. But on the other hand, he looked at anyone who said, what racism? There's no more racism in America. Uh, he, he never, nobody ever dared to bring him that, uh, that glass of Kool-Aid. So what, what he, and of course, uh, Martin Luther King and, and others, I think what's uh, the, the teaching moment for all Americans really is that we don't have to reduce and we shouldn't reduce our discussions and our relationships and our debates uh, to an issue of race. But we also have to make sure that we recognize that there's racism, that we roll up our sleeves, that we work together to fight it, to combat it, and to marginalize it. You know, we know that hate is an acquired uh, taste. And, uh, you know, I guess the big difference when I was growing up as a teenager in, in New York and today is, is something that um, I would say is social media. That's the big game changer. You know, 100 years ago, Winston Churchill said something like this, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. That was a hundred years before social media. And we all know uh, we both contribute to that. We uh, are targeted by it. Uh, we're victims of it. Uh, and uh, you know, it's really a matter of how you feel. What's your great quick one-liner? You know, how could you reach them? maximum number of people without necessarily doing a necessary uh, fact-checking. Um, you know, even um, on, uh, let's say, when was it? Thursday. Uh, Thursday, when uh, after speaking to Nick Cannon the night before for a half hour, I went over to his headquarters. I want to talk about a gesture. I schlepped all the way to Burbank, California, from the west side, which and we spent about three and a half hours. Um, and I think Talking now generationally, because I just uh, am now on the other side of 70, um, what I found amazing uh, was that everything that people do today seems to need to be captured by a video camera, by an iPhone, um, that, that, you know, everything just needs to be. So getting used to having not so casual conversations while cameras are rolling, uh, I think is an extra burden on uh, on a lot of folks, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think it was um, you know an important opportunity for both of us. He's coming over here tomorrow uh, for a follow up meeting because we want to uh, you know go from the philosophical about what's the nature of repentance and forgiveness to how do we work together uh, you know to move things forward for both communities. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I feel like your analysis is extremely important at this time when we're essentially asking other groups to sort of join our struggle and our movement. And John Lewis was someone that knew exactly how to do that. Even his very methods. I mean, no one, I mean, if Nancy Pelosi calls him, you know, gentle and says that he was the consciousness, like that's the conscience. That's so that's so powerful. And I feel like 
in this conversation that we're about to have, it would do us well to sort of remember his legacy. Selena, I know, I know you looked up to Rep. Lewis. Um, how do you feel having lost someone? Pelosi calls him, you know, gentle. Sorry. Um, that's okay. Yeah, no, uh, your words, Rabbi Cooper, were so powerful. I actually felt myself getting emotional when you spoke about, um, you know, this angel ascending from earth back to heaven. Um, yeah, it, it was really emotional for me, and it still is, because John Lewis, to me, has always been an American hero. If we see how he laid his life down on Bloody Sunday in Selma, how he delivered such a powerful and riveting speech during the march on Washington. He was actually, he was criticized for using the word revolution. Like his speech during that, during the march on Washington was, you know, it, it, he didn't hold any bars. He was very candid and he talked about racial justice by any means necessary. Like I know I'm quoting Malcolm X, but he still had what was considered a radical spirit at that time. And he dedicated his life to fighting for liberation and for freedom and for really trying to reconcile the, the, the original sins of this country. He didn't have to do that. He grew up as the son of sharecroppers his, in the 1940s in rural Alabama at that. And he rose to become a leader in the student nonviolent, um, excuse me, in the student nonviolent coordinating committee. And that committee in itself, that organization, again, it took the fight for civil justice even further because they were the young militant radicals that were not afraid to do whatever it took. And I, I think I had the pleasure of meeting him just once. I've heard him speak live at least twice. And every time I heard him speak about getting in good trouble, it was like the mantra to my life. It reaffirmed my dedication to social justice, Black Lives Matter, and everything that falls within that umbrella. So John Lewis, to me, was a true, like we talk about true Americans and being and patriotic. That was John Lewis because he never stopped believing in this country. And that's yes. why he dedicated his life to heal it and make it better. Yeah. You know, John Lewis inherently believed in the American dream and American exceptionalism and what America could be. Um, I don't know if like I like I don't I don't have, I don't share the same optimism about America that John Lewis has always had, but I share a deep appreciation and gratefulness to him for the work that he did and the sacrifices that he made and the conversations he's had and the spaces he's held because that has created a path and the opportunity for me to be able to do what I do, and we are in some really dangerous and hurtful times and a lot of times it could feel like we've made no progress but I know we have because John Lewis was an example of that he pushed for that and he had the strength and the foresight and, this, and it doesn't and the power too to hate the hate oppression but not the oppressor because he understood the oppressor was oppressed too that's something that I struggle with deeply I, I don't know I, I can't say I did the same thing I don't do the same thing um but it was and like some people find that to be weak. And I think the people that find that to be weak don't understand what love is and like how love is powerful and how love, like it's, it's, they find it passive and it's not passive, it's powerful. It's powerful and active love, it's revolutionary love and that's what he was about. And you know, he is passing, but he paved such a way for us to do this work and just like put us in a position so that we didn't have to go through some of the same things that he went through. 
He gave his life to the movement. And we shouldn't have to have people who have to give their lives to a movement. We shouldn't be in that space anymore, but we are. And I'm forever grateful for the sacrifices that he's made and the things that he's done, even moments where people like me who have been critical of him. He's never, he's never pushed back in a way that was harmful. He's always loved, even if we didn't see eye to eye. And his legacy and his impact, it just you, you can't question it. You can only appreciate it. Right. I, I would just uh, follow up on something, uh, some of the things Stanley and Selena and Tammy that you said, you know, about him. There's, of course, another element that I would suggest to our, the activists today to reflect on. And Tammy, you actually uh, queued it up when you were talking about the headlines. In the last few days of his life, he had real-time legislation in place to help people who needed help. Now, if you've ever been in, in the nation's capital, ever went with a class trip or whatever, um, there are 435 members of the House. That's a lot of people. Some of them served a very, very long time. And the day after they leave, they're totally forgotten. Um, he, he was, his moral voice uh, meant that any other politician going right up to the chief executive of our country, if he picked up the phone, he got through, not because of the votes he could deliver, but because he's a reminder to the rest of Americans about where we needed to get to as a society. And I think maybe one of the most challenging and difficult uh, elements about his legacy, and I think Stan, you, you were alluding to it, is in these very divisive times when a lot of people are sort of like saying, oh, democracy, you know, that's, that's so uh, passe. No, democracy is, uh, is the best, it's what, again, Churchill said, uh, a, a democracy is the worst form of government, he said, except for every other form of government. So the fact that uh, Congressman Lewis stayed at his post over there, the fact that he, uh, yes, he helped, he helped found SNCC and then was kind of pushed aside because he wasn't perceived as being militant enough. Yep. But if you take a look at the bottom line about deliverables, he understood instinctively where the real deliverables are at. And the other piece, which I think he got by virtue of a mentor, which we all wish we had personally, was Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, why did, how did uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and John Lewis, why did they speak so powerfully uh, to Jews? because they weren't necessarily always addressing us, but their message specifically uh, resonated, especially with uh, those of us growing up back in real time during those years. They often cast their message, especially Reverend King, in the words of the Hebrew prophets. Uh, these people knew the Hebrew prophets better and could uh, quote from them probably better than most rabbis. It was in their spiritual DNA. And whatever in the hearts of hearts how people feel about race and about people who look different than them, um, I think what their modus operandi was, always look for allies. Never take a knee to the old way, but always look for allies to try to move the entire society forward. If you're able to do that, everyone wins. Yeah. And right now, you know, we're all bereft at this point in terms of leadership of anyone really carrying 
uh, that mantle. It's all about, uh, you know, dividing up, uh, you know, sides. Uh, very often it's more about slogans than practicality. Talking about a lot of money being exchanged and, and shipped over, uh, you know, by, uh, by corporate America. Where does that stuff ultimately land up? Um, you know, if you have an opportunity, I was once asked uh, a few weeks ago, so if you had an opportunity, let's say, what would you tell the NBA? What, what do we do in each of those games? As, here's an example. What I would do, I would take every month for the next probably 24 months that there is actually basketball, and I would put the image of great African-American heroes one at a time, starting with ML King, maybe now John Lewis makes it the second month, so that every parent coming in with every kid to every basketball court is going to be exposed. You know, who is Rosa Parks? Why is her face on there? Yeah. So I think this is also extremely important now that because of the murder of, uh, of George Floyd, that we really don't blow the educational moment. What is the message that you want to deliver to young people of all colors here in America? It's unique, we're at a crossroads, and it's, a, it's an outrage that it had to take yet another murder for us to get, get here. But right now we're at a crossroads. So what's the message you want to deliver to that kid who's wearing whatever it is, number nine, number 10, number 50, and coming in probably now with a mask, what's the teaching moment that you want to put before uh, groups in uh, kids in in a basketball game? Yeah. And in a larger sense, what do you want to what do you want from the rest of America? What's the writ large message? And I think that's what we lost today more than anything else. Sort of like the last bridge to ML King, the activist bridge. Where, where John Lewis never forgot that point. Whatever he was doing, wherever he was speaking, whatever legislation was before there, um, and he knew where he was, he had an objective, he knew where he was going, not only for African Americans, but for the rest of America. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, his history can serve as lessons for the future generations of activists, because I know he spoke very fondly of sort of the new movement taking on the same power or force that led him to do his sit-ins and his activism um, earlier on in his life. And I think, I think if we come out of today with an understanding that he sort of has laid a blueprint on how we can get involved as activists and how we can continue fighting for the rest of our lives, at least from his death, we have sort of a legacy to go around and, and to go under. Um, thank you for sharing, Rabbi Cooper. Um, <clears throat> next up, I wanna hit sort of more of a light topic. I wanna talk about another black legend, but sort of get a little bit of the sadness out of our souls. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> Vanity Fair, a longtime staple of pop culture geeks, fashion experts, and society news has finally entered a pro-black era, just in time for this news. 
Uh, Viola Davis was given the latest cover, shot for the first time by a black photographer um, shooting their cover. His name is Dario Calmis. Uh, to make this art even more inspirational, Calmis claims the work as his love letter to black women. And Davis's story includes detailing her struggle from rags to riches and outlining how since she's made it, she's protested every step of the way. Davis's struggle, as we know, is deeper than just making it. From refusing a wig at the 2012 Oscars to her production company that centers black independent art, Viola says protesting is a part of her voice, even in her career. So I'm gonna jump to you first, Stanley, because I know sometimes you're critical that things like this don't mean much to the movement because corporations, media, blah, blah, blah. Is this not a big win for us? This is a this is a win. It's definitely a win, um, and it's something to be happy about and something to feel good about. But we always have to remember until these like these places need to be giving up power in a real way, and they're not. And until that is happening, we're not making enough progress. So we always have to be pushing for structural change, which looks like a transferal of power from those who have it to those who don't. And those with power don't just give power away. Yeah, well, wouldn't you say that Viola making space and taking power means that we are working toward that? I would absolutely say that. I want to see what happens, like how she's able to wield that power if they try to stifle that power. I'm, you know, I'm always just concerned about, you know, the ways that white supremacy uses tokenism to appease the masses. That's fair. And Selena, how can we keep this sort of focus on black art going, even as the movement around us, you know, slowly fades. By demanding it and making sure that black art and black people and black women in, in this particular instance are not just a trend that sell and on basically on trend because that's the hot topic of the month of the week. Um, we have to continue to push for it and demand for it. Like when Beyonce, uh, her latest cover, when she did that cover of Vogue a few years ago, she made sure she hired a 23 year old black young photographer as well so the people in power it's indignant upon them it's incumbent upon them to make sure that they're creating a pipeline of talent uh that that encourages diversity and inclusion because we as a community aren't doing well if only one make it if only one woman one black woman is on the cover of vogue or vanity fair for the whole year or the next five years that's not you know th that that's yes we applaud it but the entertainment industry as as a whole has been, you know, very, they, they've been, it almost been transparent about the lack of diversity there when it comes to, you know, a lack of black and brown Hollywood producers and decision makers and people who can green light certain programming. So we have to continue to speak up and demand it and keep our foots on their necks. Rabbi Cooper, I know you're not you know, in the black community per se. But I do think you have an interesting perspective here as someone who consults with other black artists. So is there any sort of advice that you would give to up and coming black artists on how they can be pro-black, but in a way that works in solidarity with other groups that may be rooting for them? It's a really good question. I've obviously been struggling with it. And it was one of the conversations I had with uh, this uh, guy who has some potential, uh, Nick Cannon, uh, the other day. Uh, and the way I see it as, uh, you know, not just an outsider, but someone as an American Jew and someone who's at the Museum of Tolerance and 
working in, the, in this arena for many uh, decades, is, um, again, I think the challenge here is, how do we make sure we don't reduce everything through the lens of race on the one hand? And how do we make sure that we, in the battle for equality, we don't let anybody off the hook when there's real racism? So part of the end game is, whether it's in entertainment or in team sports, uh, or in the House of Representatives for that matter. Uh, we talk about power. Uh, you have sometimes you have to you know push for it with an elbow, but at the end of the day, unless you're prepared to sort of say, well, I want to transform America, so there's going to be a line between black and white, that that's never going to work, and that's uh, you know that takes us down the wrong path. But this is a time to also try to come up, uh, I think, again, something that Stan keeps coming back to, you know, how do you come up with um, a game plan uh, in which you can bring the kind of inclusivity that, uh, you know, Congressman Lewis, for example, figured out how to do in getting legislation passed. Uh, it, it's the same way, I think, in terms uh, of creative places, whether it's on the sports field or in Hollywood. If you have a really good idea and it's gonna sell, then you deserve a piece of the pie. And if you're not getting it, it could be a, a part of that has to do with discrimination and racism. On the other hand, Hollywood's always gonna be a very you know, difficult and challenging place. And um, you know, it, it's, um, but also beginning to show the signs of more uh, inclusivity. I'll come back again to the other point is, it's very important to keep your eye on the issue of tens of millions of dollars, maybe more being checks being written by panicky uh, corporate folks. Where's the best place? Stands from Harlem. Uh, it's not the same Harlem that I was growing up in the 60s, thank God. But there are plenty of addresses there, here in South Central, in Chicago with some of the African-American pastors I work with. You want a list of the people who were there before this all started? They're there right now, and they're going to be there trying to serve the community tomorrow. I think that's one of the main uh, uh, issues. And then the other piece that I'd like to bring up, um, as a not, not quite white American, because I don't really fit that either, uh, just as a reminder, six million Jews weren't, weren't white enough for the Nazis. So being you know, the idea of uh, white Jewish uh, uh, wokeness or whatever is just you know, a complete turnoff. So just before the pandemic, I spent a few days in a place called Abuja, Nigeria, actually with a friend of mine, Pastor Johnny Moore. And if you'll have us, sometime in the early fall, we'll come back. So we spent a couple of days uh, debriefing uh, Africans, Christians actually, down to a nine-year-old girl who were survivors of terrorism in their own country. Uh, it was an amazing and humbling experience. We're, we've written a quick book about it. Uh, Johnny is about as white as you can get. I'm about as Jewish and New Yorker as you can get. So I think also that as the, uh, hopefully as the African-American community in 2020 and beyond be, begins to uh, feel its muscles, including politically, uh, it's important that we also take a look you know, across the ocean back to Africa 
uh, where you don't have white supremacy as a function. You just have the way people are. People, you know, have tendency to be corrupt. They want more power. They may say one thing and do another. Uh, I think that African-Americans, starting with the Black Caucus, but even the people I'm looking at right now, you know, dynamic young people and Stan, I don't know what's wrong with your hair. You got more than I do. Um, you know, that, that's also part is expanding your vision, the bandwidth of activism uh, to, uh, you know, to include uh, involvement in human rights. And just to bring it back, you know, I grew up in growing up in the streets of New York. At that time, there was the great uh, uh, Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, which no one thought would ever end. We had three million Jews stuck in the Soviet Union. They couldn't live as Jews and they couldn't leave. And a lot of young people uh, just felt that after you know, the Holocaust, we had to do something else. You know, that one of the first people to speak about the plight of those three million people was Martin Luther King Jr. way before the Jewish establishment woke up. So again, we understand this is a constant battle, a constant fight for equality and more than equality for a part of, you know, the American dream, a real part of it. But that also means that if you keep and you develop an expanded vision, you're going to find relationships and a worldview that's going to further empower you uh, in a really positive way, instead of just building those red lines between the communities. It's a huge challenge. It calls for the long game, not just the short game. And uh, as we know, we look at uh, someone like uh, Congressman Lewis. Those giants are few and far between, but nonetheless, you know, if you have the moral vision, it carried him to the very last day of his life. Honestly, sound advice, sound advice, because while black art is necessary, um, for representation and, you know, people being exposed to our communities. You know, not having that expanded vision is exactly what got this black artist in trouble. And so <laughs> I'm going to wrap the news roundup on that so we can start to talk about how, you know, not learning about other people, places and cultures makes you small-minded and it will affect your life and job if you cannot understand other groups and respect them. So thank you so much, Rabbi Cooper, for talking with us about these stories. Um, for those listening in on the podcast or live, follow us at Be Heard Talk. We didn't get to talk Miss Stallion, the hottie, and we didn't mention nefarious Roger Stone, Disney villain. But if you're following us, I'll brief you on those stories later. Thanks so much, Selena, to you. Yeah. Thank you, Tammy. Um, yeah, so as we have been mentioning throughout the show, we need to talk about Nick Cannon. He's definitely been in the hot seat for a while, and I just want to brief you guys really quickly on the controversy, and I know we have a clip we want to play too. So Nick Cannon came under fire last week for a series of anti-Semitic comments that he made on his podcast, Cannon's Class, during an interview with controversial hip-hop figure Professor Drip. Now, the multimedia entrepreneur and host of The Masked Singer amplified Griff's view that Jewish people control the media and he perpetuated anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Nick also said that Black people are the true Hebrews 
saying, quote, it's never hate speech. You can't be anti-Semitic when we are the Semitic people. He added, when we are the same people who they want to be, that's our birthright. We are the true Hebrews. Stanley, do we have the clip? Um, actually, we have a, a separate clip. That the, yes, the example where you talked about um, white people specifically. So I'll, put, I'll play that now. Thank you. Then let's go. Let's let's go to what it really is. Then when we talk about the power of melanated people, when we talk mm -hmm. about who we really are as guys, and, and right. understanding that our melanin is so power and it connects us in a way that the reason why they fear black, the reason why they fear is because they the lack that they have of it. So then when you see what you know, Doctor uh, Francis C. Wellesley talked about is that fear and that 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 uh, genetic annihilation of mm -hmm. when you have a person that has has the lack of pigment the right. lack of melanin right. that they know that they will be annihilated so therefore however they got the power they 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 have the lack of compassion mm -hmm. that mel melanin comes with compassion melanin comes with soul that mm -hmm. we call it we call it soul we soul brothers and sisters that's the melanin that connects us. Right. so the people that don't have it have are are a little, and I'm, I'm gonna say this carefully. <laughs> are a little less, uh, and 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 where the term actually comes from, because I'm bringing it all the way back around okay. to, to Minister Farrakhan, to where they may not have the compassion or the the when they were sent to the mountains of Caucasus, when they when they didn't have the power of the sun that was that the sun then started to deteriorate mm -hmm. them. So then they're acting out of fear they're acting out of low self-esteem they're acting out of a, a deficiency thank you stanley for playing that clip that was again another clip where he talked about specifically white people or non-melanated people um so after these clips went viral viacom they terminated their decades-long relationship with nick and oystered him from his popular comedy franchise while and out now, Nick responded by initially going onto Twitter and Facebook saying, and I quote, Viacom's goal to keep me from providing for my family and lineage will be foiled. He went on to write that they cannot kick me out while I'm down or force me to kiss the master's feet in public. That he also said Viacom was trying to hang me out to dry and make an example of anyone who says something they don't agree with. Then, less than 24 hours later, Nick swung entirely differently in a different direction. He says he responded to an announcement from Fox that they would not fire him for the mass Singer. And he said, and I quote, he feels ashamed of the uninformed and naive place his anti-Semitic comments came from. And he extended his deepest and most sincere apologies to my Jewish sisters and brothers for the hurtful and divisive words that came from my mouth, end quote. Now, many on social media are calling Nick's apology insincere, while others are accusing him of selling out. But for me, this is an opportunity to have a much needed conversation about anti-Semitism, the cultural tensions between the Black and Jewish communities, and the intersectionality between anti-Semitism and racism. And that's why we invited Rabbi Abraham Cooper on the show. Again, he is the leader that spoke directly to Nick Cannon before Nick issued that apology. Rabbi, you spoke to Nick after the everything happened. What did you say? Well, uh, uh, first of all, let me just say that uh, I, I sent out a tweet after watching the program. And just for full disclosure, I'm the rabbi in 1989 who took on Chuck D 
And maybe one of the few people in America who even know who Griff is. Uh, and, you know, there I am watching a, uh, a YouTube and I'm just hearing what I heard back in 1989 and now hearing the same uh, tropes. You know, Jews control the banks, Rothschild, all the rest of that stuff. So my, my tweet was just real quick. If you want a PhD in hate, watch this YouTube. Um, apparently, um, uh, Nick saw the tweet. He wrote a note to the, to, to the Wiesenthal Center uh, asking to speak, and uh, which I was prepared to do, but I, we sent him in advance uh, something we'd actually released about three weeks ago of quotes from Minister Farrakhan going back to the 1980s about Jews, about gays, about Hollywood, etc. Because I wanted the conversation to be substantive and not for someone to say, you know, I don't know. We had a long talk uh, on Wednesday night. Um, you know, he, I said, when, you, when I watched you say to me, I'm not a Jew, I'm not the real Jew. I mean, that's a trope that's been around unfortunately for a very long time, uh, often pushed by extremists in the Muslim world. Uh, that's sort of the ultimate uh, put down. Imagine if someone came to you and denied your blackness and said, you know, uh, well, we know that, you know, your color of your skin, the toe, whatever it might be. Um, by the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I want to, uh, you know, apologize to you. And I said, honestly, don't apologize to me. Every Jew feels that way. You know, you put it out on a platform. Your, your job is to, is to apologize to them. But I also said to him right then before we even met, uh, is that be, be aware that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar earlier this week uh, wrote an explicit, you know, op-ed about uh, anti-Semitism within the African-American community. He was immediately called a Judas, an Uncle Tom, and in the back pocket of Zionists. I know Kareem for a long time, and he was fearless on the court. You know, he's an author, he's well-established personality beyond uh, basketball, and a really, you know, independent thinker and a courageous individual. I'm not worried about Kareem. He can take care of himself. But you understand that if you really mean this, you're going to get a blowback, which did come. That led to a meeting uh, Thursday that ran for about three hours, very wide-ranging, uh, and another meeting tomorrow, uh, unfortunately, the Museum of Tolerance is still technically closed because of the virus, but we'll meet uh, uh, here in Los Angeles to try to discuss some practical ways we can move forward. Why I say that is, uh, you know, we come from a faith that introduced the concept of repentance, the possibility of change to the world, maybe one of the most important contributions that Judaism ever made. On the other hand, we don't believe in saints. We don't believe in original sin either, which, which means that the most important part in evaluating another person or another community, more than words are deeds. You have to figure out if you're gonna, you know, people say, well, do you think he really meant it? And et cetera. We, we can't look into hearts of other individuals. And I've had situations before, including with a pretty high profile uh, a fellow in the African-American community where there was a rapprochement. And then during the course of the last couple of uh, weeks, you know, going off the rails again in terms of anti-Semitism. But I, I think having met him, he's extremely bright, extremely well-read. 
he surprised me because he knows a couple of very uh, important uh, quotes from uh, from the not only from the Hebrew scriptures but from the Talmud, and his Hebrew pronunciation was impeccable. So this is someone with a voracious appetite, you know, to learn, to read, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And again, at the same time, when you live a life in which it's always wide open, it's always on social media, whatever, every hiccup, whatever you say. But in case, in the case of the of the dialogue with Griff, to me, the frustration is this was just the repetition. Again, like here we are, thirty years later, right. hearing yeah. the same crap over yeah. and over and over again. And that's something that, you know, we, we all have to deal with. Absolutely. And, and uh, Rabbi Cooper, thank you so much for letting us know. Um, shortly after that conversation, Nick Cannon uh, put out some cryptic uh, post about wanting to leave here on Earth. He later admitted that he was having some suicidal thoughts. What was his state of mind during your conversation? Because it seemed like something went drastic. Well, the backlash and everything happened, and it seemed like there was a drastic turn in this in this narrative well look uh i'm now an expert on griff because uh I, on uh, on nick cannon because i spent a half hour on the phone and three hours in person so i i can't uh you know fully evaluate where he's coming from oh uh, you, what you I, don't know his personality right uh well you know it's been a long time since i went out on a first date <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, look, I, I think, uh, again, uh, we forewarned him that, you know, and I think he understood that whatever he was going to say, there would be, it would go sideways, backlash, et cetera, et cetera. That is the culture that about a billion people around the world, mostly of the younger generations, have embraced. And that's also, you know, part of, uh, uh, you know, the, the price tag for that is you almost never have a time to reflect, to take a deep breath. Uh, I imagine that if he shut off his Twitter feed for 72 hours, people would hire private detectives to find out if he was still alive. So um, I, I, honestly, the person I met is quite vital. Uh, he's highly motivated. He's someone who would like to, he's telling us would like to do the right thing. And also, you know, to be perfectly honest, we realize this is all happening in real time when his future, uh, you know, culturally and financially is hanging by a thread. So we're not naive, but at the same time, yes, there is a moral obligation to give person, a person a second opportunity. Uh, and, um, and the way to do that, you know, I told him a, a famous story about a, a great rabbi named uh, the Chafetz Chaim which means the lover of life, he lived about 150 years ago, he would have had zero followers on Twitter. Why? Because his thing in life was he never he told people, don't ever repeat a rumor, even if you think it's true. That's about as uh, 18th century or 19th century as you can get. And the story yeah. went that one of his followers came to see him one day, distraught, crying, and he said, you know, Master Rebbe, I've been following you, listening to your sermons for 40 years, and I've tried never to repeat, but this morning I heard a rumor about my neighbor, which I knew to be true. And I repeated it to a couple of people, and a half hour ago I found out it was false. What can I do to repent? So 
you know, they lived in a, in a poor hovel back in Poland. And he said, do you have a chicken? Meaning a live one back home. He said, yeah, we'll go home, pluck the feathers from the chicken. Okay. Make a line with those feathers from your door to the door of the person you hurt. I don't want to know who it is. And from his door, all the way back to the study. So 90 minutes later, he comes back out of breath, master. I went home, I plucked the chicken, the feathers, I made the right, and all the way here, am I forgiven now? And the rabbi said, yes, my son, you're forgiven. There's just one more thing you have to do, collect the feathers. So I told Dick, your job, because you're actually one of the few people in the world who's in a position to collect the feathers. You have millions of people who are following what you're saying, what you're doing. Your mission is to collect the feathers. And we'll know soon enough, that's in terms of the quote unquote apology. Assuming that we're going in the right direction, and I believe that we are. Yeah. The, the next, the bottom line issue is, how do we work together? You've got a museum right. of tolerance. You've got yes. a, a dynamic, creative person. So how do we move forward uh, you know, uh, in, in this time? Look, if there was no COVID, the meeting would have taken place in the Museum of Tolerance. We're locked down. We were one of the main spaces here in, in Southern California, right. California, after the LA riots, after mm -hmm. we're all right. about that kind of dialogue. Absolutely, so, moving forward. And, and Rabbi Cooper, uh, you know, we also want to explore just the history of anti-Semitism because I think for some people, we aren't as familiar uh, we hear the Jewish stereotypes, so we don't know how deeply rooted they are. And before we get to that, Tammy, let me just ask you, what was your reaction to Nick Cannon's remarks? You know, as a woman of color who is, who's lived overseas, you lived in Germany, uh, uh, not only that, but as a millennial, I'm pretty sure your, your reaction was different from Rabbi. Yeah, so um, his comments are like, aggressively ignorant a lot of people in like our community I feel like would hear it and say oh why is it such a big deal you know um, I feel like Nick was mostly saying positive things or you know Nick was just speaking historically the problem is that it's untrue these are just you know he spouted a lot of rhetoric but a lot of it didn't have much truth to it geographically, historically, and in terms of like Jewish people holding major mantles of power. Um, and that's really what shocked me because, you know, in Germany, it's, it's literally still illegal to spout Nazi propaganda. And so children are taught like from very young what the truths are in terms of, you know, what that group did or said. They learned very early the sort of verbal tactics used to subjugate the Jewish people. And so when you hear something like that over there, like a Rothschild theory, it's like, it's just laughable and it's ludicrous. And so when I heard it, I was like, why are we even debating this right now? Nick Cannon is so wrong. Like why, why are we defending the ability to not be truthful and harm another group in, in the process of doing so. Stanley, I wanna get your voice in here as well. Were you surprised at the backlash that Nick Cannon received? Um, you know, he was fired. He was, a lot of people calling for him to be canceled. Were you surprised? 
Um, no, I was not surprised about the backlash. And I want to kind of like answer a little bit of the question you asked Tammy to answer the question you asked me. Um, I was not surprised when Nick Cannon made those comments either, or when Griff said those comments. These are comments I've heard all my life. These are comments if you walk to 125th Street and I'm Clayton Powell or 125th Street and Fifth Avenue, you will hit a black Israelite saying. And the fact of the matter is like, like there's a large chunk of the black community that is anti-Semitic because they are anti-white. And mainstream society has now depicted um, Judaism and Jewish people as white. And we know that there's an entire diaspora of Jewish people from all over the world. But so like, that's why it didn't surprise me. Um, it also didn't surprise me when there was such a punitive response from Nick Cannon, because as I just said, like modern society depicts Jude like Jewish people as white. And if there's one thing society will protect is whiteness. Now Nick Cannon was 100% wrong for what he said. And he's 100% wrong for um, bringing Griff on that show, who obviously is clearly anti-Semitic. But we also need to like go to the underpinnings of what the, some of the deeper problems, which is white supremacy. Folks are trying to find a solutions for white supremacy, and they're looking to anti-Semitism to find those solutions, which is not only wrong, but it's also dangerous. Because as the rabbi said earlier, there's a lot of affinity between Black people and Jewish people, and there are Black Jewish people, and we should acknowledge that. Um, but I do find it interesting on Viacom's part to be so punitive with Nick Cannon, who we don't see that kind of energy for when clips come out from Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or Tommy Lahren or Roger Stone, who earlier today said, I don't have time for this Negro during an interview. We don't see that kind of punitive action when there's hate speech geared towards black people. And once again, that's because modern society sees Jewish people as white. I just wanna keep on driving that point home. Stanley, before I let you go, um, before we actually move on, what about the sellout part? Because those same people that you were talking about who are on 125th in Harlem and Brooklyn and all these communities of color, they're now calling Nick a sellout. What do you think about that? I think they're 100% wrong. Well, first off, like personally me, I, I have a, like a deep affinity and appreciation for Jewish people. Like I consider them our families and our sisters and brothers and siblings in the struggle. So if I would have said something that was as hurtful, I would apologize just like Nick did. And I would also be trying to do the work to educate myself and others. And I think that's what Nick did. I think folks are pushing back that way because they feel like he is responding to losing his money and getting in trouble with the man. And what we need to do is separate whiteness and white supremacy from Judaism. It is not the same thing. And Nick is not a sellout for saying that these people who have also struggled like my people, who have been enslaved like my people, who have been tortured and punished like my people do not deserve this. While at the same time saying white supremacy and this false dichotomy and idea of whiteness needs to be destroyed completely. Nick is not a sellout for that. And those people, like it shows you that we have a lot of educating to do because folks' minds are still colonized. And because white supremacy is so insidious, even while looking for black liberation, you start using white supremacist tactics to do so. If uh, I can, yes, just yes, before I go on, Selena, is that what I noticed also at the beginning of the uh, YouTube that I watched, it said Howard University. And then I myself, when I sat in, in, in his studio, right, it says Canon's class. Well, you know, if you're running a classroom, you got to do your homework. And if you're saying something as a teacher, and he is certainly someone who's a voracious reader and, you know, is, is going for advanced degrees, a very bright you know, individual always, you know, like a, like a sponge trying to, to, you know, to take in whatever he can. That means 
uh, to, to Stan's point, is that it really does call for trying to go a little bit deeper. You know, and one of the things that John Lewis, of blessed memory, did, and it took, you know, in the, in the, up, in the uh, run up to the 1999 Million Man Black March on Washington that Louis Farrakhan arranged, he said it was all going to be about repentance. And a lot of people, including a lot of Jews like me, were hoping that that would open, you know, a new path and a new direction. Unfortunately, it didn't. But, you know, even as he acknowledged the power of Louis Farrakhan as a strong leader, um, John Lewis did not go to that event because of, of Farrakhan's anti-Semitism. So that also took a lot of courage. We spent a lot of time, uh, I assume it'll, it'll eventually be out uh, on, uh, on a podcast. We spent a lot of time in which he was explaining what Farrakhan's message of empowerment, black empowerment means to millions of, of uh, African-Americans. And I was explaining to him why when a Jew hears the name Louis Farrakhan, we think about the black equivalent of the KKK. It's a huge gap. So yeah. we, we all understand that we don't, writ large, we don't want to reduce our historic obligations or relationships to one person. But it's also clear that one of the greatest orators in American history, and that Farrakhan is, he taps in and knows how to push the buttons in his community, which tragically for both communities includes some of the worst anti-Semitism, you know, right. gutter religion, Hitler was a great man. It's, and yeah. one thing you can say about him, he's nothing if not honest. He has been consistent for yeah, over man. three decades. He hasn't budged. Maybe that's a tragedy. He hasn't shown the flexibility. It's he's not going to. It's going to be up to the next generation, you know, to, right. to take it forward. And a special shout out to Tammy. I want to hear next time all about what it was like spending time in Germany. That's, uh, that's almost like walking around Berlin as I do with the Amalka. So we have maybe we should have dinner some night. You'll tell me all about it. For sure. I'll tell you about Munster, which is a town that is riddled with sad stars all over. Um, yes. Missing monuments, just really broken history. It's super dystopian and still somehow very beautiful. Um, Stanley, I know we're getting a lot of comments on Facebook. I want to get to some of those comments now. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Selena. So um, shout out to everybody who's listening on Facebook Live, Evan Mastronardi, Chris Ochucci, Erica, Erica Vladimir. Um, I want to read a comment from Evan, and then I want to read a, a comment from um, Crystal. So Evan says, Jewish people are both harmed by white supremacy, but can also perpetuate it and benefit from privilege. Um, I want to make an amendment to that and say, like, white like white facing jewish people can benefit from white supremacy um but i don't know if everyone would agree with that but i want to make that edit and then crystal says as an as an ethiopian orthodox member of the church and growing up speaking the semitic language myself i'm a Harik, i've just always been lost on centering on jews and jews only in relation to anti-semitism i mean maybe it's predominantly a western belief versus the worldwide one but it'll be helpful if that would be addressed rabbi would you be able to address that not yeah, I, uh, let me make a comment first on, on Evan about privilege. You know, I, I did go to Yeshiva University up in Washington Heights. And a couple of decades before I came around, they, why you started a medical school. In to anti it, it started a medical school called the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, now one of the most famous places in the world. The reason 
they had to start the Albert Einstein School of Medicine is that there was a harsh limit on the number of Jews allowed into American medical schools. So the answer of the Jewish community uh, way before we had quote unquote privilege or for that matter, any political clout, which we had none during uh, World War II and, and before was, well, if they won't let us in, we'll build something better and bigger so that our kids and others will be able to be uh, educated. So, you know, the idea of just sort of jumping over history, I don't know whether or not it's important to have monuments or, or not, but the idea of erasing history means it allows you to take a quick snapshot and do it from an angle that serves your own prejudices. That's number one. So with respect, if you want to talk about privilege, I don't think any African-American basketball player has privilege. He earned his way there because he happens to be better than 99% of the other people playing basketball. Unless you want to call that privilege as well. I, I don't. I think it was earned. Now, it's interesting, and I'm glad that the young lady from, uh, who's an Ethiopian Christian, I happen to know all about Hamharic because if you visit Israel, I don't know if you guys have before or if you will, I'll be happy when you go. Let me know. I want to try to enhance your experience there. And uh, you can meet eight of my grandchildren in Jerusalem, have dinner with my, with my daughter. But you'll hear Amharic on the streets of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and elsewhere, because Ethiopian Jews, black, black folks, returned home. And by the way, they weren't universally embraced. Yes, we have racists among uh, Israeli citizens. There are nine million of them. But for us, it's never been about race or about color. We have Chinese Jews, we have black Jews, we have white Jews, we have good people, and we have our own morons uh, and bad people as well. So again, if you see my sort of coming back again and again of rejecting, um, seeing, experiencing life only through the lens of race, that's because the Jewish family uh, is bigger, it's more inclusive, uh, probably the single largest group in Israel are the Jews who came from the Maghreb, from North Africa, and Yemen, uh, and Iraq, and, uh, and Iran. Um, so, you know, I, the, this lens of, of reducing or trying to uh, put in or explain the success of any individual only because of privilege, I think is the wrong path, it's the wrong message uh, at a time where the potential for empowerment and advancement among African-Americans, you can, I'm sure you can almost feel it, it's palpable. That's why I come back to my original point. It take control of what your teaching moment is. If it's all about that we have to defeat X, Y, or Z, I get that. But what's the vision moving forward? You know, where do you get that vision from? Who creates it? Might you look back to a John Lewis and an MLK? It's not for me, I, I'm a neighbor. I'm not black, so I can't and I won't, uh, you know, be involved in saying, uh, do this, that, or the other thing. I could just share our experiences. Um, uh, Rabbi, I know we don't have time to go through an extensive portion of history, but if you can just brief us quickly on what made uh, Nick Cannon's remarks anti-Semitic. What, what is, because again, like Stanley says, a lot of us hear this all the time and you know, people don't know or, or, or people don't think that associating Jewish people with having a lot of money is even a negative thing. 
you know? So can you just brief us again to why this is so harmful and dangerous? Just right. real quick, can I just jump in real quick? I'm sorry, folks. Sure. Um, I, I, just, I did have some pushback for you, um, Rabbi, some non-hostile pushback. Um, like, I think we, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that, like, privilege and showing up as white is a privilege in this country because white people get treated differently from black people. And as a black man, I can't take off my blackness. And that impacts the ways that I engage and show up in the world. And like, if you're a Jewish person, but like you are white, you can, you can take off the yarmulke, you can, you know, you don't, you can walk the streets and generally be regarded as a white person. And like that privilege is real. Like some of that might be scaled off because there is obviously discrimination for Jewish people. But if you're a white face and you're a Jewish, you are definitely, I, I want to push back and say, you are definitely facing privilege. And then also, you know- uh, as, let, let, me, let me answer that one because it's a very, very important point. So yeah. Stan, just consider the following statistic. Since the FBI started keeping statistics on hate crimes, I think it goes back to 1992, every single year, with the exception of the three months following 9-11, but every single year through 2019, here are the truths about America and hate. The number one target of hate crimes based on race, by far, are African-Americans. And the number one target of hate crimes based on religion are American Jews. Uh, it's a one-two uh, category that no one on this program would like to maintain. So I'm not, I don't want to get into a victimization game. In fact, I'm not even in, interested in victimization. I'm only interested in moving forward. And I understand why you just assume, well, wait a second, if you take off your kippah, that's your uh, entry into whiteness. Guess what? It's not so simple out there because the bigotry and the anti-Semitism uh, is real. It may not be spoken about a lot, but it's something that is actually fought every single day because people are people and hate is hate and racism is, and words have consequence. So we, we, can, we can debate the whiteness part, uh, but it's not the um, you know, monopoly get out of jail free card that African-Americans think it might be. It just isn't. Stanley, does that answer your question before we move on? Yes and no. Um, just look, I, I hear you. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that like African-Americans and black people across the diaspora would see it as a get out of jail free card. Definitely not. But if there's a thunderstorm and black people are getting drenched, you might just have a little piece of cloth over your head because of that whiteness. And then also you're 100% right about those stats on hate crimes, on race and religion. But then there's redlining. And then there's like actually like blocking people from getting housing opportunities or job opportunities. And there's also like the struggle to get acknowledgement. We talked about it in the beginning where Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, all these people are spewing hate speech about black people all over the place. Cops are killing black people in cold blood. And we can't even, we can't even get everyone to agree that this is wrong. And like, so when we talk about privilege, it's not a, these are the pieces that I'm talking about. I don't mean to make it, you know, confrontational, but I really want to make sure that I'm pointing those things out because Walking around as a black man, no matter where I go, I'm inherently in danger. And, you know, and as a black woman, the same thing. So I want to make sure we highlighted those pieces. Thank you. I, I want to point out an aspect of sort of privilege 
that hasn't been mentioned, but I always like to think about in this conversation. While I do agree, so Rachel, my friend, as a Jewish person commented um, that this topic is interesting and requires a lot of nuance because you know, some Jews can benefit from white privilege, how, you know, black Jews and other Jews of color who exist don't get to exist in the same spaces sometimes that white Jews do. But for me, Jewish privilege is also remembering sort of model minority. And to me, that brings me back to the rabbi's points, which is being a model minority does not necessarily give as much privilege as we think. And I think for the black community to actually unlearn these stereotypes that, oh, you know, Jews have it better than us, or, you know, they may benefit from systems of privilege. We need to start thinking about where those stereotypes actually come from. It's true, Stan, like white supremacy puts these stereotypes on our radar. It tells black people that, you know, Jews control all the money in New York and they're the dirty landlords kicking you out. And it tells Jews that, you know, black people can't be trusted and will run over their businesses. It's the same facet. So, you know, while it is true that I think, you know, being perceived in America as white or having perceived whiteness, despite being a whole separate ethnic group, does land you privilege. It's important to note that their privilege doesn't take them as far as I think our community thinks it does. And there are still, you know, horrible stereotypes that prevent them from achieving like real success and protection in their communities. You know, being perceived as sort of a group that has it already or is liberated or you know may have layers of privilege is harmful to the the hordes of jewish people that are still in poverty and experiencing hate crimes so it's important to remember that facet of it as well yes yeah no i 100 percent agree with what uh tammy is saying i just think that um I've always seen the Jewish community as being self-sustaining. Like, it seems like, and I don't know if that's wrong, please educate me, Rabbi Cooper, but it seems like within, at least the communities in New York that I've seen, um, compared to, you know, other Black communities, there is a huge, you know, difference in affluence, access, you know, this elitism. It's just, there's, there is, there is a lot. So I think that just seeing that and not having the education is is and that that's what's problematic so if you could if you want to just brief us on the history well we you know real quickly and also let let's not forget unfortunately tragically i wish there are no poor people at all in new york or in la for that matter but uh there are uh probably at least tens of thousands maybe more of new york jews who are at the poverty line or or below so, you know, the, if you're talking about a stereotype, uh, you know, they get maybe stung twice from that. Uh, but that's sort of outside the realm of uh, talking heads and, and uh, stereotypes. So Tammy could probably tell you she was in Germany uh, without going back 3,000 years when, when the uh, Jewish people were kicked out by the Romans about 1,800 years ago from their land and scattered all over the place in uh, pretty much every place they went to, they were uh, a minority and a powerless minority. And worse than that, they were kind of stiff-necked, like some African-Americans I know, which I know means we must be connected somehow with the DNA, meaning that, you know, we believed in one God, 
we pray to that God in our way. And there were Jews who paid the ultimate price because they wouldn't take a knee to another faith. And uh, later on, as uh, throughout history, throughout the Middle Ages, we started coming into the modern era and you had nationalism taking hold in Europe. And we know what price their col the colonialism into Africa, that was another disaster you know, for, uh, for black people. But it also meant that what uh, Hitler and the, uh, his Nazi followers did is they drew on historic religious anti-Semitism, which meant from the church for all those hundreds and hundreds of years, having the Jews around, reminding everyone that there's a, there was another path to God, uh, made them the easy whipping boy uh, and, and uh, shunned them into they, what they first did it in Italy. It's called ghettos. The, whole, the word ghetto is Italian. The first people thrown into ghettos because of their faith near the garbage dumps in Italian cities were Jews. In the modern era, that religious-based hate was transmuted into race-based hate. And so the, the pyramid, which we're now, you talk about white supremacy, the ultimate white supremacist were the Aryans, the Nazis, who said that they were at the top of the heap, everyone else should either be subjugated or removed. And the Jews were identified as subhuman. And when World War II came about, you had the Holocaust. The war was a cover. What happened in the Holocaust, an industrial-sized mass murder, the dehumanization uh, of, uh, you know, of people, uh, the destruction of an entire generation of Jewish kids. Anne Frank is the best known and remembered of 1.5 million children. And the tropes that were used were um, Jews controlled the banks, Rothschild, you just go down the same, it's a dirty religion, uh, they killed God, whatever it is, they put it into what was then a new form in the 20th century called propaganda, way before, you know, it's very interesting, Simon Wiesenthal, we have, we're named after, he lost 89 members of his family in the Holocaust including his mother, and he became the great Nazi hunter. He was once asked at a university, I was, I was in the audience, could it happen again? And he said the following, if you have an economic or social crisis, if you have a governmental program, and if you have technology, this was 40 years before the, 30 years before the internet, he said, anything is possible. He said, in fact, if the technology that the, the Nazis had in the 30s and 40s was available in Spain, no Jew would have survived the Inquisition in Spain. No Catholic would have survived in England. And no Protestant would have survived in France. So that always stays in, you know, in the back of my mind. We live in, in a world today that's driven by technology not necessarily by thought, but by feeling. We're certainly now living through the most uh, unanticipated, incredible time. Are the dynamics there for real disasters? And, and it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be a funny man with a mustache and a swastika. And it doesn't mean the victims are necessarily going to be Jews. But the dynamics, the potential, in fact, are always there. And, you know, I guess we just have to be for, forgiven if we're hypersensitive, 
when these tropes are brought up again, because we were, as Mr. Wiesenthal said, you know, growing up in the 20s, he said, well, he heard the, on the radio this crazy guy called Hitler, and our first reaction to him were Jewish jokes. And then by the time we woke up, it was too late. So part of where we come from institutionally, where I come from generationally, if someone talks to you about that in those terms, we take it seriously. Um, Rob, I, um, thank you for that. I do want to get to Rachel's comment. She says in response to the question I asked you, Rabbi, Selena, I think it depends on where in reference to being self-sustaining. Like some communities are tight and self-sustaining, like some Hasidic groups in Brooklyn, but some are not. Where I grew up, even though there were some even though there were a decent amount of Jews, we didn't really have a self-sustaining community and we didn't rely or trust each other. So thank you, Rachel, for chiming in there and educating me um, on that question. We do have to bring this conversation to a close. I know it is really good. Um, but before we wrap up, I just want to get everyone's final thoughts on what needs to be done to strengthen the bond between the Black and Jewish communities. I'll start with you, Stanley. I mean, the simplest solution is education. There really needs to be education done so that like, we can understand more about our communities and the origins of the communities and the struggle so that we can see that we're not that different. And then also, I've been saying this all show, but it's really important to state that like, we need to decolonize our minds from the idea that all Jewish people are white. That is not true. And I think because that there's this idea and white supremacy is all encompassing, it poisons the well in understanding and love and black black people and jewish people have a lot more to, to to learn about each other and a lot more space to work with each other because neither group can be completely free unless the other group is free we are all in this movement together and the enemy is white supremacy that's what it is so let's continue to educate let's continue to fight let's continue to love on and support our jewish siblings sorry Sorry, guys, I was on mute. Tammy, what are your thoughts on bridging the gap between these two historically marginalized communities? So if education is one, then my number two would be actually going out there and organizing. Y'all know I'm an activist, so I my solution is always on the streets. Um, I think activism and organizing is a really clear way to build solidarity with two groups. Um, if you hear of a Jewish hate crime happening, show up and bring your black friends. And, you know, Jewish folks, show up to the Black Lives Matter protests because I guarantee you in those spaces, you will meet people from both cultures who are willing to learn and willing to teach. Um, I just want to say, for those ready to start the work, I have a few recommendations. Go to howtofightantisemitism.com. That's a great starting point for sort of uh, anti-Semitic things in America and how we can stop that. Uh, please look up the group Jews Against White Nationalism. It's a group of leftist Jews uh, trying to eradicate white supremacy as it goes against all ethnic groups in the States. Um, and look up the organization, If Not Now, which does organizing based on the principle of, if we don't do something now, then when, which is something a lot of Jewish people talk about, especially in remembering how they had to fight against the Holocaust. So get out there, meet a Jewish organizer, have a great conversation. Rama, I want to give you the last word on uniting these two communities. 
Well, well, thank you. I think it's always, uh, you're taking a tremendous risk giving a rabbi or any clergy the last word, but that's very tolerant of you, I must say. I don't know how smart. I'm, I'm actually just going to reduce it to two words in Hebrew, tzedek and tzedakah. Tzedek means justice. The same root for, of justice, the word tzedakah, which loosely translates to charity. So there's no distance between those two concepts in Judaism. Moving forward, being compassion and compassionate uh, to others uh, and having a commitment to justice goes hand in hand. The way to move that forward is not to fall in to the trap of reducing the lens of our humanity to race of just black and white. If we are able to, uh, you know, as Stan was saying, sort of to embrace each other with our differences, show mutual respect, then anything is possible. But when you come to the table, especially when Jewish people come to the table, they come to the table with both of those Jewish attributes, tzedek, justice, and tzedakah, charity and compassion. Thank you so much, Rabbi. We appreciate not only your time today, but the work you are doing. You are very active in your own community, as well as bridging the gap between the Jewish community, Black community, white community. You know, the work that you're doing is just humanitarian. And I want to just thank you. And I'll close this segment by saying, um, I think if there's one thing that we learned today is, at the least, we can't cancel people, right? I, I think that, you know, earlier we were talking about Nick Cannon, and this all stems back to him because he's the one who initiated this conversation. It brought up a great opportunity for us to connect, for us to learn, and for us to hear one another. I think that one of the greatest evils of oppression and white supremacy has been its ability to divide, whether that's Blacks and Jewish people, or even within the Black community when it came to colorism, the house Negro versus the field Negro. We've heard this, we talked about this. And historically, if we look back, I think that the way to move forward is not only through education, it's through love and respect. Two pillars that the late John Congressman, uh, Congressman John Lewis was huge on. So with us being millennials, you know, look, if you ask me, this world is ours, but it's ours to make it better. And if we can do that, if we respect one another, if we listen to one another, and if we love one another. And on that note, I want to thank everyone who chimed in and tuned in today to Be Heard Talk. Thank you so much. We saw all the comments on Zoom as well as Facebook. We just didn't have time to actually read them all. And if you're listening via podcast, again, please share this and tag us at Be Heard Talk. And also support us on GoFundMe. We have a GoFundMe account, GoFundMe.com slash Be Heard Talk. By giving a donation and supporting us, we will continue to support the issues and causes that you care about. Till next week, guys. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Nate, great meeting you, Rabbi Cooper. Yes, thank Pleasure. you so much. <laughs> we'll you, see Rabbi. you when New York opens. We'll have dinner together. You owe me. Looking forward. <laughs> Looking forward to it. All right, guys. Take thank care. you. Bye-bye.